0: Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kernikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review leaving a 5-star rating, and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. Tonight we're going to cover the women found in Genesis 1-11. through 11. Let's jump right in. Now your notes... I'm going to start with something that's not in your notes because I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to. If you looked at these notes in a few weeks, I didn't want to freak you out. There's actually a character that does not appear in Genesis one through eleven, but Jewish mystics for about a thousand years, maybe more like fifteen hundred years, have filled in the blank. And so what? What Jewish mystics? And by the way, if you, have you ever heard of Kabbalah? Uh, Madonna is part of that. That's a Jewish mysticism. Kind of grew out of the Middle Ages. They're big in this, but there's there's ancient writings that talk about a character named Lilith, and it, Lilith is based off the Hebrew word for a wild bird. And so, Lilith uh, is in the Catholic apocrypha. No, you're thinking of Judith. Judith is a book that appears in the Catholic apocrypha. I actually don't know anything about the Book of Judith. It wouldn't take too long to research and under, figure out what it is, but just right where I'm standing now, I don't know anything about that book. For those of you who don't know, Catholic the Catholic Bible includes books called the Apocrypha. So in the early 1500s, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Church, by the way, he, uh, he started with 97, and then one of his friends recommended maybe he shouldn't have quite so many you know, thought 97 is too many, so he pared it down to 95, and he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle. What he was trying to do is he was trying to spark a debate. Luther's original goal was not to split the church. The, Luther's original goal was to try to begin a academic discussion in Catholicism to try to get them to reform some issues, especially around the selling of indulgences, which is the idea that You can uh, sin... It's not necessarily... Sometimes you'll hear people say it's preemptive. So if you want to sin next Tuesday, you can go buy an indulgence today. I'm sure there are people who did it that way, but that wasn't the point. The point was that you can knock some sins off your ledger so you spend less time in purgatory, which is something Catholics believed in. Martin Luther wanted to start the debate to try to reform some of that stuff, and instead the Catholic Church took it as a direct affront, thus starting the Protestant Reformation. Anyway... The, about a generation later the Catholics met, met in something called the Council of Trent they were trying to argue against the Protestants number one academic argument and that is sola scriptura that all of our teachings and beliefs and, and especially anytime you say you must do or you must not do something any dictates have to be based on scripture and if they're not based on scripture then they don't count it doesn't, mean, it doesn't even necessarily mean they're wrong So we know things like water is one part oxygen, two part hydrogen. That's not in Scripture. It's still right, but that's not something that's taught by Scripture, so it's not... Anyway, any time the church speaks authoritatively on beliefs or practices, it has to be based on Scripture alone. So the Catholics came back and said, Well, actually, we believe that the, the Scripture is wonderful, but you've got the order wrong. It's church above Scripture, not Scripture above church. So the way they went about proving that was by including the Apocrypha, which was a series of about ten books from that intertestamental period I told you guys about two weeks ago. The ten books that up to that point had not been accepted as Scripture, they had always been accepted as Scripture adjacent, like stuff that's similar to Scripture but not specifically Scripture. They went ahead and took those books like Maccabees and Judith and Baruch and put them back in the Bible. So, a modern Catholic Bible will have about seven I think seven or eight more books than the Protestant count of sixty six Good catch though Judith and Lilith sound alike they 're not the exact same character. so who is Lilith? Jewish mystics believed that that the story told in Genesis was not quite full, so they imagined a scenario where when God created Adam from the lump of clay from the same lump of clay, he created. Adam's equal, and that was Lilith. And so Lilith was Adam's first wife, and Lilith's main sin was she was independent. She did not want to be subservient to Adam. She basically wanted to buck the trend of the patriarchy, and because of that, in Jewish mythology, Lilith is sometimes even portrayed as a demon, as a demon figure. Of course. (laughs) Exactly. So... And by the way, if you wonder where these Jewish mystics mark down their um, where they get this from, well it's not in Genesis and it's not even really in Isaiah, but they'll, they'll proof text isaiah thirty four fourteen you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you isaiah thirty four fourteen and wild animals shall meet with hyenas, the wild goats shall cry to his fellow indeed there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. And then if you have a Bible that has a little notation, like this one, it says that that term night bird, the identity, is uncertain. In fact, you'll find this in the Hebrew Bible, there's a handful of of, of words we don't know how to translate. This word for the night bird and the word for Lilith come from the same Hebrew foundation, so they think this is a secret Reference to this character, but once again, let's read this verse. Do you see any reference to a woman here? I sure don't. And the wild, yeah, the wild animal shall meet with the hyenas, and the wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There's the her herself, yeah. But you'll find this a lot, and and well, and it it puts it puts it puts people like me in an interesting place because as a Christian. And as a Protestant Christian, I stick to sola scriptura. I want to stick with what the text says, what the text teaches us about things. As a secular history professor, you know, as much as I am a history professor, I want to be fair to the way texts have been treated throughout history. I have little tolerance for the Lilith myth. It's just not something that's found in Scripture the most value I get out of it is it teaches us how Jewish mystics have thought in like that late Middle Ages period. It gives you an insight into their view about female independence and why Eve was superior because she apparently was more subservient to her husband. But as we'll see, Eve has a bit of an independent streak herself as we jump into the text today. So we'll start with your notes with the first woman mentioned in Scripture. Eve will be in Genesis chapter 2. We'll spend most of our time talking about Eve. Most of these other characters are barely mentioned in uh, the text. But we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. Her story is mentioned from Genesis 2.18 through 5.2. But about half of that is the story of Cain and Abel, which we don't need to read through that whole story. So what we're going to read through is Genesis 2.18 through 4.2. And then we'll come back and read that tag at the end, the end of Eve's story. So that would be 425 through 5.2. Okay, so with that in mind, here we go. Genesis chapter 2. By the way, I never mentioned that you guys need to bring a Bible with you, but... I didn't because I... And no, that's... and, and this isn't... This, I did last week. Last no, it's, it's not a problem. This is a... there's probably a Bible here if we look around or yeah. But if, if not, you guys can just uh, listen along if you wish. Yeah, that's, that's how I... I um, back when I just had an iPod, I, I spent like $150 to download a couple of Bible versions completely. Uh, on and, and since I bought that subscription, I still have access to it. So I've got like uh, uh, quite a few Bible verses, including the Greek and Hebrew. I don't even read Hebrew, but I, I never took Hebrew in seminary. Okay, Genesis... Chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Now, obviously, Adam's story has been told up to this point, but we're just going to jump in right at the point where uh, Eve makes uh, her entrance. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of heaven and brought them to the man to see what he could call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Interesting side note, for a long time doctors thought that men had one less rib than women because of this passage, which I never understood that because this doesn't say that all men lose a rib, just that Adam lost a rib. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Oh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of your garden. Uh, uh, well, I think that this translation is being more, it's, it's that specific tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, "The woman you gave to me, well she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate." Real real alpha male there, I should say. <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, "What is it that you have done?" The woman said, "The serpent deceived me and I ate." So both of them are playing the blame game and both of them are right, but it's still a blame game. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now this passage, sometimes you'll, if you read the right books, they'll call this the pro-evangelium. Which is Latin for the first gospel. This is perhaps the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. The first mention of a coming savior. In this case, one who will go to war, figuratively speaking, with the serpent, who figuratively speaking is the, the devil. So the devil and the Messiah will go to war, and the snake shall bruise the Messiah, and the Messiah shall, or no, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve. Interestingly enough, she doesn't seem to have a name yet at this point. And by the way, Adam's name is just the Hebrew word for humanity, or for, for mankind, Adam. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Again she bore his brother Abel. And then thus begins the story of Cain and Abel, the first murder, which is still significant for Eve's story because... As a mother, she, I mean, can you imagine a worse heartbreak than, than one of your sons killing one of your other sons? This is something she definitely dealt with hard. Skipping down to verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, And they called his name, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and named them man when they were created. All right, so that's the core of Eve's story. Let's do a little analysis. Okay, first, uh, there's a couple of themes here. The first one is the the theme of a name. You'll notice this a lot in Genesis and then again in Exodus. And then uh, again, it'll it'll pick up in other parts of the Bible where a character will sometimes be left uh, named or unnamed. And that seems to be significant. And there are... Some cases, like we'll see in a minute, uh, Ada and Zillah are, seem to be extremely insignificant characters in the story and yet are named. But typically speaking, it is it, it's important for a character to receive a name in the text, and sometimes it's important when a character doesn't receive a name. The best example of this would be Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh is never mentioned. And I always find it interesting that everybody always seems to assume that the Pharaoh mentioned in Exodus is Ramses II, which Scripture never says is Ramses. In fact, there's evidence that it probably wasn't Ramses. The Jews built store cities, and one of the store cities they built was called Ramses, which implies that the, city, the store city, a store city is like storage, like uh, grain bins and stuff. Uh, one of the store cities was named after one of their great kings. Ramses II was a king for 60 years, or pharaoh for 60 years. One of the longest verifiable reigns of all time. Some mythologies have kings reigning for thousands of years, but verifiable reigns, I mean, Ramses, Queen Elizabeth II, a handful of others, That uh, the, the son King Louis XIV reigned for like 70 years, but... Sixty years is a long time to reign. Ramses II was one of the greatest Egyptian rulers of all time. And that's probably also why some people want to imagine that the pharaoh in the book of Exodus is Ramses, because of how great he was. I'm actually, I I follow the the line of thinking that it's actually a pharaoh by the name of Tutmos III. And the reason I believe that is because of the timing. It allows the events of of the Exodus to be a little bit later, which seems to line up a little bit better with some of the dates we do know from archaeology, like the reign of David and the reign of the, some of the northern kings. But also because Thutmose's sarcophagus, his his mummy, shows signs of skin disease similar to leprosy, which seems to line up with somebody who may have suffered through some of the plagues that, came, that you see in the book of Exodus and that's assuming that you believe that the book of Exodus is literal on, on those plagues and since I'm a supernaturalist I have no doubt believing that they're, they're, they're real but as a secular teacher I have to leave open the possibility that it's all mythology oh but I bring all of this to say this Exodus intentionally I believe never mentions Pharaoh's name not once it's always just referred to as Pharaoh or king of Egypt I think that's kind of a, a, an underhanded dig, a slap in the face. It's, it's a way of trying to, it's an intentional choice to say that this character is not even worth naming. We're just going to call him by his by his title. The, the, the problem with my theory there is that it seems like the same thing happens at the end of Genesis with a pharaoh who is to be considered a good pharaoh because he's the one that freed Joseph from prison and then rose Joseph to the role of a basically prime minister of the nation but that pharaoh is also never mentioned by name either so my position on the pharaoh of Exodus may or may not be sound but in, with Eve as well as with Adam you have characters that do receive names and one of the things in Hebrew and I don't know Hebrew unfortunately so it doesn't uh, it, I have a, a hard time catching a lot of these things unless I look them up but most names in the Bible are purposeful names, and most of our names aren't. My name, William, comes from the German for basically Wilhelm, as uh, willful guardian. The helm is similar to the word helmet, which is something the warrior wears, and then the will, willfulness. So will uh, determined guardian is basically what... William stands for but i i'm not really a determined guardian i'm not a warrior i never joined the military it's not really a name that applies to me that doesn't mean that you're not a warrior well maybe maybe not but you're a warrior you're standing up for christ and teaching us all about Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. that's how you warrior well i appreciate it (laughs) but what my point is that that at this point the names often were intended to convey a, a kind of a deeper meaning and so instead of just being named after somebody you like, like if you know, I name my son Abraham Lincoln Wrights or something, uh, instead of doing that or, or naming a, a name that sounds really cool, like, oh, Jerome, Jerome sounds cool. I'll name my kid Jerome, not knowing what that name means. Names had meaning, and, and the name Eve implies an origin of motherhood. And Adam is just the Hebrew word for humankind, Adam. Nevertheless, you have a, a named character. One of the things you'll notice on our notes today is most of these characters are not named. Cain's wife, and then the these others; these are just people mentioned. Uh, these aren't necessarily characters; they're just abstract characters. The daughters of the Adamite line, the daughters of man, and the daughters of the Noah line. But then you have Noah's wives, Noah's wife, and daughters-in-law. Those seem like important characters, but they're never named. And so, as as we go along, we might. Actually, once we get past Genesis, I don't know if we'll deal a lot with unnamed female characters, but it certainly it certainly does seem to be important that Eve is a named person. Next, neither Adam nor Eve are heroes or villains in this story. They are complex combination of good and bad. They are sympathetic characters. So when you see Adam blaming his wife and... and Eve blaming the supernatural snake you at the same time you you're sitting there and you roll your eyes oh, typical man blaming his wife kind of thing but at the same time we're like I could totally see myself doing that it's, it's a it's a sympathetic it's it's neither heroic nor villainous next let's deal with this idea so if you have a King James version you'll notice that Eve is described as the helpmeet the helper of Adam. So this implies a a hierarchical relationship, and it would be disingenuous for me to say that that's not how it was intended. It was intended as a hierarchical relationship. It is not, however, intended to be a value relationship. In the same way that the quarterback is not more valuable to a team, it might be more important to a team's chances of winning than, say, the punter or the backup tackle, but not, they're not necessarily more valuable as human beings. And if we win the Super Bowl again, they'll all get the same ring. So, for instance, that word helper, and I should have... No, I didn't put it in my notes. I, know, I don't have a specific address for you, but I know that in the book Hosea, that that same word is described in relationship for God, that God is our helpmeet. And so, if the same word is used in Hebrew to describe God and His relationship to mankind, then it's not necessarily a value judgment against women to describe Eve as the, the helper. One of the things you've got to realize is that through most human history, patriarchal societies didn't necessarily need to be misogynistic to be patriarchal. It was just the natural way of things. Men are in charge. And That's the way the people who lived in those societies thought was. that's just the way things are. They didn't necessarily have to hate women or to degrade women in order to push those those opinions. Now, were there misogynistic people throughout history? Of course there were. Of course there's been hateful people. But one of the things that we need to be careful of as modern people is for, if we see ancients or not necessarily ancients, people lived 100 years ago, but uh, if we see people in the past whose opinions about something we feel are inferior. So I can look at Thomas Jefferson and say that, yes, he lived at a different time, but even living in a different time, his opinions about slavery and the races were wrong. I can make that judgment, but... I have to at the same time acknowledge that what I'm doing is I'm applying my standards from today and it would be helpful for me it'd be humbling for me at least to realize that somebody hundred years from now is going to look back on the stuff I put on Facebook at least some of it and say God, what a you know he's I don't even know what I'm I'm guilty of but I'm guilty of something because I cannot line up with all of the standards social, ethical, religious standards of a hundred years from now. It's not possible for me to do that. So, what is my point here? Eve is described as Adam's helper and yes that is a hierarchical relationship. The intention is for Adam to be kind of the the manager of this couple and Eve is like the assistant manager. That doesn't necessarily mean that Eve is less valuable or less important. At least not in in the text as presented. The next uh, theme is, you, this is the first time you start to see mentions of uh, the image of God. Specifically, when the concept is introduced in chapter, was it, the end, was it chapter 5 or was it, let me go back to our text. Yeah, when God created, okay, so this is the, uh, when God created man, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. That's Genesis 5, verse 2. And so the idea of being in the image of God in the same breath implies that both male and female expressions of humanity are both in the image of God. The image of God is not just for men. And yes, most of the time, in fact, pretty much all of the time, when the Bible talks about God, it does so with masculine pronouns, and Hebrew and Greek has you know more than English. Have anybody studied Spanish? And you know that just about everything has uh, a masculine and feminine. I mean, cup and pen and chair all, all have a masculine, and feminine. That's not something English necessarily does. But in the in the Hebrew and in the Greek, God is almost always referred to with the male pronouns and the male verbs and male nouns. That being said there are passages like this when the topic is actually brought up of maleness and femaleness and it's very specific in this case that both of them flow from the image of God. So even though God is identified with the male gender the female the expression of femaleness also flows from the image of God. So that goes back to part of what I was talking about with even though Eve is granted an inferior position in the, in the couple, that it's not necessarily a value judgment because both maleness and femaleness come from the image of God. And then I think it's important at this point to point this out. Whenever you study history, you're always looking at at least two viewpoints, and that is the viewpoint of the people you're studying and the time and the culture in which that, that is in place. So if we were studying the Civil War, I'd be studying the world of the late 1850s and the early to mid-1860s and studying the people and the events in in context with what was happening then. But I also always have to be mindful of my perspective in 2023 and my life, which started in the early 80s, my adult life, kind of mid-90s somewhere, so for, for the last, let's say 30 years, and all the stuff that has formed me as a person and the way I view the world my religious opinions, my political opinions uh, my life circumstances, etc, etc etc, and so if I were to, to properly study history I need to be mindful of the viewpoints that I'm studying as well as my own biases as well Now if you're studying history by using books that were written more than say 10 years ago, you all of a sudden you add a third viewpoint. And so for instance, when I went to college and I got my degree in history, the books that I was assigned as a history major, some of them may have been written after 2000, but most of them were written in the 90s. Those same books that I read as a history major in college, most of them would not be assigned today. Not necessarily because they're bad books, but because they're representing the 90s. They're representing the way, his, the, way the history field was taught 30 years ago, 20, 20, 25 years ago. And so if you study history that way, all of a sudden now you've added a third focal point. So not only do you have to study the viewpoints and the culture and context of the, the events you're studying, so the Civil War, and not only do I have to be aware of my own context and culture and biases. But then now I have to add the time frame of whatever sources I'm reading. So now you're adding three focal points. That's one of the reasons why, unless the book is just incredibly good, then history books tend to fade into history. And there will come along others that will replace them. And some exceptions might be if you were studying the last half of the Roman Empire a professor might still assign to you Edward Gibbons, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. It is an extremely long and an extremely good book, but it won't take you long reading it to realize that he was in the 1700s. And so all of a sudden now you're having to study the late Roman Empire, and you're sitting in 2023, and you're studying these through somebody's viewpoint from the 1700s. I say all that to say this. Inevitably, when we're talking about characters in Scripture, a lot of times we'll do, like, like with Eve, we'll always have questions about, like, well, was Eve really in a patriarchal society? Because, And there are other interpretations of just what is happening in the first chapters of Genesis. But for right now, let's just take it literalistically that the, the, the story as it's presented is exactly the way it happened. Well, is Eve really in a patriarchal society with just two people? Does a husband having a slight power arrangement to his wife, does that imply that an entire patriarchal society? I would argue yes, because I'm not necessarily looking at Eve's situation I'm now, I'm thinking about when was the book of Genesis written? Because Adam and Eve didn't write it. If we're to take the story literalistically, then the means of, of I mean, alphabets don't exist for thousands of years. All the people that we'll read about in the first few chapters of the Bible, they did not have writing. It did not exist. From a secular standpoint, you'll often hear people talk about humans. modern humans have been around for a hundred. Or 150,000 years. And of that 150,000 years, writing started about 5,000 years ago. So most of human history has not had people who wrote stuff down. So Eve wasn't writing Genesis. And if she did, she would have written a lot more. I mean, there's a reason why Genesis 1 through 11 covers so much time. It's not written by the people that experienced those things. So... What we're doing is we're looking at Eve, a character, through the time frame of when the book was written. And the best guess for when uh, Genesis was written, the earliest uh, candidate I've heard is Moses. That if Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The latest candidate I've heard would be around the time of the exile. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he crushes Judah, carries the rich and the wealthy and the educated off to Babylon, and then 70 years later, led by Ezra and Nehemiah, those guys came back. Some people believe that it's those, that generation, Ezra and Nehemiah's generation, when is when all these books finally made it down into writing. So sometime in between that time period... So Moses, I would say, 1,700, 1,800 years before Christ. And then Ezra and Nehemiah would be about 500 years before Christ. So about a 1,000-year window right there. And if we're reading Genesis, recognizing that the book was written then, then it definitely was representing a patriarchal culture. And so Eve's story is going to be told through an Israelite culture that was uh, definitely a male-led, male-dominated society. So who wrote Genesis? Nobody really knows. Traditionally, it's believed that Moses wrote those books. In fact, if you have a King James Bible, it'll say the first book of Moses, the second book of Moses. But it was all handed down with oral tradition before it was written down that is absolutely almost certainly true like i'll say 99% true in fact genesis shows all the hallmarks of that so the closer you get the closer you get to now the more fleshed out the story gets that is that is similar to oral traditions and then the deeper you go back in history really you're only getting the highlights and that shows all the evidence of that between in genesis 1 through 11 you're only really getting the highlights and if you were to take Adam and Eve and Noah as important characters in the Bible, I'd say they'd all be top ten. I mean, you got Jesus and Paul and David. So you've got other people that are definitely above them, but they're, they're top ten, top twenty most important characters in the Bible. And you can read all of their story in like 15 minutes. It's The Bible does not take a lot. Oh, and Moses, of course. I forgot Moses is important. The character. But Moses, if you were to read everything about Moses, that would take you most of an afternoon. And that's reading quickly through all those laws that you that not necessarily about Moses. They're just in that section of the Bible. So traditionally, it's Moses who wrote uh, Genesis. My own personal viewpoint is that Genesis is a combination book. That the core from Abraham to Joseph, the core history of Genesis, actually is older than Genesis 1 through 11. I believe what Genesis 1 through 11 is later writers came through and they took oral history and laid it out in a way that specifically hits highlights and then eases into Abraham's story. And then at that point you you get the more ancient part of the book. And so that doesn't really answer your question who wrote it, but... Well, one of the reasons is Exodus, the second half of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Deuteronomy is kind of its own thing. Show hallmark signs of being written in opposition to Egyptian cultural norms. That they were the dominant cultural power in their region. And so a lot of times you'll see things that that the Bible in those sections of the scripture that are teaching you that directly go against things that Egypt would be taught about the way the world began the way the gods do this or that etc etc Genesis 1 through 11 though if if you look at it if, if you were to say one culture it seems to be opposing it's not Egypt it's Babylon so you got the tower of Babel that is Babylon the Genesis chapter 1 every day God created this or that, seems to line up more, more point for point with Babylonian religious beliefs and customs. The story of the, the, the flood narrative, which the Bible grants to Noah, is a direct correlation to the flood narrative in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And so Genesis 1-11 through 11 seems to be in opposition to Babylon. And so that implies that it was written later. That does not mean that it was made up later. What it, if I'm right about that, what it means is that later biblical authors took oral traditions and laid them out in a way that was like a, a figurative middle finger to the Babylonians. Whereas Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers were written in a way that was a proverbial middle finger to Egypt. You honestly, you, gotta, you won't catch any of that the first time through. It's, it's like your fourth or fifth time through, you'll start to notice little trends. That'll show you. If you were to sit down this weekend and read through Genesis, I think you can notice a slight tonal shift once you get into Genesis 12. The tone, the focus, it just, it just tends to shift. It's almost like they're two different books. Does that even come close to answering your question? We don't really know. No, not really. <laughs> Now, from a Christian standpoint, it's, it's important to know that these passages are still Scripture. You don't need to know who the author is for it to be considered Scripture. Hebrews, we don't know who the author is. In fact, some of the earliest church fathers, I'm going to say Oregon, maybe, you might or, or Origen, uh, is quoted as saying, uh, as to the author of Hebrews, only God knows. And Origen was early enough that he actually knew the Apostle John. And so it's pretty clear that from a very early age, nobody really knows who wrote Hebrews. That doesn't mean Hebrews is not Scripture. And likewise, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, you'll see that those people definitely treated Genesis and Exodus as Scripture. They had no no problems with it. In fact, that's a good segue for us to introduce. Eve is actually mentioned twice in the New Testament. So, 2 Corinthians 11, 1-4. 2 Corinthians 11, 1-4. Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So in this case, this is not necessarily a judgment against Eve. It's a I mean, he's pointing out that she was deceived, but so does Genesis. He's using it as an example, just as the mythological serpent, uh, or uh, supernatural is a good way, the, the, the supernatural snake deceived Eve. In the same way, he feels like his Corinthian church is being deceived by other forces as well. A little more challenging is First Timothy chapter two, verse eight through fifteen. This is an interesting passage here. Paul opens a couple of cans of worms we're not going to have time to go through completely tonight. But Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls and costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness." Every time you read that passage, people are like, well, what does that mean? She shall be saved through childbearing. All right, spoiler alert, nobody knows. That is one of the top ten passages that you put ten theologians in a room and you'll have at least eleven distinct opinions. So we're going to skip that uh, little can of worms the let women learn quietly with all submissiveness might be another can we might need to leave unopened for tonight as well. What I... Yeah, that, well... But one of... This is one of those things, like every time Paul mentions slavery, from our ears we're like, oh, come on, just come out and say slavery is evil and anybody who supports it is an idiot. That's what we want him to say, because that's what... that's our perspective. But... Paul, even without coming out and saying that specifically, he still, everything he says undermines the, the institution of slavery. And so while he doesn't come out and just say slavery is evil and shouldn't be done, everything he does talks about how slaves and masters serve the same Christ and that we should be brothers together and, and encouraging Onesimus to free, no, or encouraging Philemon to free Onesimus. And that everything he says about slavery is undermining it. He just doesn't undermine it as much as, as we want him to. So likewise, Paul says, let all women learn with submissiveness. And the word that jumps out for us is with submissiveness. But to other cultures, the, what might jump out is let women learn. So what's going on in Afghanistan right now? I think there's a lot of feminists, hardline left-wing feminists in Afghanistan who would love for the Taliban to obey Paul here. Sure, let us be submissiveness. Give me my geometry book back. I want to learn. I'm sure that there are... So different things jump out to to different people at different times. One of the things that jumps out to me on this is, I know Paul's trying to make an argument. He's not necessarily... He's using Adam and Eve as an example. He's not necessarily using it as how you have to interpret Genesis chapters 2, 3, and 4. But yes... Eve was the one that was deceived. It wasn't Adam that was deceived. But Adam was there. He knew. That's one one of the questions. So, so Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the text of Genesis tells us that this scenario, Adam wasn't somewhere else. The supernatural snake and Eve and Adam were there. And Adam keeps his mouth shut through the whole thing and so as his protector and as, or as her protector and as her manager she's the assistant manager that's the viewpoint that's the what was trying to be established there he should have taken more of a leadership role in trying to protect her from the deception and so i'm not here to say paul's wrong because paul's an author of scripture but this certainly is one of those times where paul's technically correct but he seems to be missing something and that is that Sure, Eve was the one that was deceived, but Adam blew it too. In fact, from my perspective, I think Adam blew it even more. Well, I do too. I, I, I think he had an opportunity. It's always been my thought. Yeah, he, he had an opportunity there, and, and he, he he straight up blew it. And then when God challenged him, he the first words out of his mouth, She, she did it. She did it. It's all her fault. Well, not only that, but the, the the specific words is, the woman, comma, whom you created for me, comma, she's the one that did this. So Adam's not only trying to pass blame off to his wife, he's also trying to pass blame off to God. Hmm. Hey, God, you're the one that gave this woman to me. Uh, I wanted a help me, and You gave her to me. <laughs> Alright, so let's quickly cover the other women that that are mentioned in these passages, Genesis 1-11 through Alright, Adah and Zillah these stand out, because remember what I said about named characters there seems to be no reason these characters should be named, they are not significant to the story, if I knew Hebrew maybe I might be able to see something that I I don't, because maybe Adah and Zillah have significant meaning that, that is escaping me But let's go ahead and read the passages. Genesis chapter 4, verses 19 through 24. Uh, Lamech here is one of Cain's descendants. So he comes from the line of, uh, for lack of a better term, we'll say the line of sin. And Lamech took two wives, and the name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play with lyre and pipe. Zilla also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of iron and bronze. The sister of Tubal-Cain... Ooh, I, I missed a named female here. I need to put this in my notes. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naama, and How do you spell that? N-A-A-M-A-H. And we, that's, she's mentioned by name once, and it's not... In the story at all at that point. So, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, "Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold." And that's it. That's that's all we got for Ada and Zillah. So, what's the significance of these characters? Not not really much. They these characters plus Na'ama are merely women in the household of Lamech. Lamech is along the line of Cain, so he represents a line of rebellion against God. So these women are part of that rebellion. Beyond that, we don't really have much. Speaking of the line of rebellion, chapter 5, verse 15. And so the way this story is structured is Cain and Abel's story is most of chapter 4, and then the results of Cain's murder and then he abandons his family and he starts up his own city and then it quickly goes through the line of Cain ending with Lamech showing that what started off as a crime of passion turns into brazen killing. It's like I killed a guy for striking me and if Cain was avenged sevenfold well I'll be avenged 77 fold even though it was God who told Cain about being avenged and Lamech is not being told this from God he's just declaring it. And so the idea is You plant the seed of sin, in this case murder, and it grows into a giant tree of murder, an evil city as it were. And then once you get to beyond that, then it comes back in time and talks about Adam and Eve and having their son Seth. And it jumps again into chapter 5 where you start to talk about the line of Adam building up to Noah. And then in verse 4.15, Genesis, Cain's wife, Genesis 4.15. Nope, it's not 4.15, it's 4.17. I really dropped the ball on this one, didn't I? Oh my, yes. 4.17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built the city, he called the name of the city after son Enoch. So that's all we know about Cain's wife. But that raises the most interesting question you'll get from every 8th grader in Sunday school. Wait, Cain has a wife? Isn't it just Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel? And yes, that is the case. So what are our options here? Well, one is, you'll find lots, and I'm not talking about people who are denying the Bible, but biblical scholars who have a more expansive idea of what Genesis is trying to do, not necessarily to give us a scientific textbook, but to try to forge a story in the midst of human history to shoehorn the Jewish story in there so that the rest of the Old Testament makes sense. And they'll say... Of course, Adam and Eve weren't the first people. They were the first people in this story. And so, who's Cain's wife? Somebody found outside of Eden. Somebody out there. The other option seems to be that Cain married one of his sisters, unnamed though she is. It is unlikely that if Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply, and by the way, they both seem to live 900 years, according to the text, it's unlikely that they just had three boys. And so, who does Cain run off with? Apparently one of his sisters. This, is unfortunately, is one of those questions where we definitely have the question, and the question's valuable, but we have to be comfortable with not knowing who this woman is or where she comes from, because the text itself does not tell us who she is or where she comes from. Now, speaking of unnamed daughters, we'll do these two at the same time. You can put a star next to the Daughters of the Adamite line, and the daughters of the Noahite line. So in Genesis chapter 5, the author of Genesis is trying to take us from Adam's story to Noah's story. But he doesn't really have a whole lot to tell us about the people who live in that time, except that they all lived a long time. They all lived like 900 years. They counted their years differently than we did. They may or may not have counted their years differently. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, maybe it's just months. The problem with that is in the Noahite line, Genesis chapter 11, you start to see years tick down. You go from Noah, who lives like 800 years, to Abraham, who lives 120 years. 120 months, that's not very long. And so it's probably not months. The author believes that humans used to live longer. And this is one of those where, as secular thinkers, we have to say that is certainly what what the Bible believed, that the Bible believed that, humans lived longer. And for one thing, if you compare this to other cultures and their description of their deep ancestors in the deep pits of time, their ancestors lived like 15,000 years. So in a way, it seems like Methuselah and Jared and Adam and Noah all lived pretty reasonable lifetimes compared to the people who are supposed to have lived and reigned for 15,000 years. As Christians, we have to, I guess, just accept if you are Christian, we just kind of have to accept what Genesis tells us and be okay with the scientific tension there. But as secular thinkers, it's enough to just say, the author of Genesis seems to believe that these characters lived this long. And yes, there's a tension there, and we're just going to have to be okay with that tension. But anyway, I brought that up to say that after, the, uh, and I checked, after each single person that is mentioned in the Adamite line from Adam to Noah, And every person that's mentioned in the Noahite line, from Noah to Abraham, not counting Abraham specifically because his childlessness is part of his story, every one of them had other sons and daughters, and daughters. So they all seem to be fruitful, and the fact that they had females in their lines is something that is pointed out. What do we know about these daughters? Literally nothing. Speaking of women we don't know much about, Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, to the men. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took them as their wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be a 120 years. Nephilim, were in the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. And these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, so what can we say about this here? Well, there is really two interpretations here and I'll give you both of them. And the one I used to believe is that the sons of man are the... And were the daughters of the, the men and the daughters of men; those are the, that's the line that doesn't survive the flood. That's Cain and his extended family, and the sons of God were the people from Seth's line who were supposed to be following God. And and but the man, and women are just so hot, and so they mixed and matched with them. I think the reason I always accepted that that interpretation is because it's more natural it doesn't involve as much mythological interpretations but it's hard to explain the Nephilim then what are the Nephilim and as mentioned here the Nephilim were on the earth in those days when the sons of God came into the daughters of men so these characters whatever these characters are exist because the sons of God and the daughters of of women and daughters of men and the sons of God mixed and matched Ancient writers, and now with things like the Bible Project out of Oregon, it's a good resource if you ever get a chance to. They've have got hundreds of these like 5 to 10 minute videos that explain aspects of the Bible. Wonderful resource. Wonderful resource. It's called the Bible Project. You can Google it. Now the scholars that lead that, Tim and John, I can't think of their last name, but I listen to their podcast every week. They accept the ancient interpretation, and that is that the sons of God are exactly what, you know, they're angels or some kind of spiritual beings. And even though this doesn't seem to line up with later angelic beings who come in Scripture, who don't seem to be sexual in nature, these ones did. And so what we're looking at here is some kind of combo, some kind of hybrid between natural man, or in this case, women, and supernatural beings. Some, some, and then the results are the Nephilim, who traditionally were always assumed to be giants. Now, if you notice, the text doesn't say giants particularly, but a theme that is here and then much later as well with like Goliath is this idea of giants being a threat, an almost supernatural threat. They are basically the physical example of a supernatural threat. So even though they themselves aren't the devil or a demon, But they're basically the physical example of what that kind of threat would be. And so the daughters of man here are, according to the text, are just extremely attractive women who apparently are so attractive that they they got themselves some supernatural husbands and produced some giants as children. What interpretation should you go with? I don't really necessarily, I'm not sure. (laughs) Just this is such a minor part of scripture it's not necessarily something you have to have a position on i'll leave it up to you the very end of chapter 11 mentions the women sarai and milka as wives of husbands who are mentioned in the very beginning of abraham's story so next week we'll actually talk about sarah sarai is or sarai is sarah's original name but that's really just a that's a transition paragraph that connects chapters 1 through 11 through the rest of the book. And so the last ones we'll mention here are Noah's wives and daughters-in-law. Once again, they are unnamed females. Whether that is important or not is unclear. They're named at Noah's Ark. In Kentucky? Kentucky? Really, what name are they given? I don't remember, but they're named. Well, they're not named in Genesis. I wonder if they got that from like in the same way, the Lilith myth. Because there are, I know that there are mystics who have provided names. Like, for instance. I thought he got that from Genesis. I've been to that twice. Well, I've been wanting to go to that. Your homework, if you choose to accept it, is you can read the story of, of Noah in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. And maybe I missed it. But I, they, they don't have names in those. Well, they do down there. I'd be interested. I'd be interested to know where they where they got them. I'm not saying they made them up, but I am saying somebody made them up. They're unnamed in Scripture. They really only exist in this story to explain how humanity survives the flood, because the story in Genesis is that they're the only ones that survived the flood, and then humanity starts over again. So there has to be females. There is the interesting story with Ham, and it is sexually explicit. So I'll give you that warning ahead of time. But, let's see, um, we'll start in verse 20, chapter 9. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and became drunk, and laid uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. And when Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and saw what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. Well, that's interesting. Not Cursed be Ham, but Cursed be Canaan, who was Ham's son. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. This, like I said, this is going to be sexually explicit. This passage is full of sexual innuendo that we don't see because we don't use the same idioms. In scripture, you will often see the the idiom of someone's nakedness referring to their sexual partner. So Noah's nakedness, if that's the sexual, if that's the idiom that we're supposed to take as readers, is similar to in the book of Esther, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. The king of Persia asks for his wife to be brought in wearing her crown so everybody can see her beauty. And you're like, oh, okay, you know, just a woman wearing her crown like a runway model. No, 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 you forgot what was left off. She's wearing her crown, full stop. So it's one of those times where the reader is asking you to fill in the blanks, or the, the author is asking you to fill in the blanks, that he doesn't want to spell out because he doesn't want to get an R rating. It's possible that the same thing is happening here. And that Ham violated his father's nakedness, have you filled in the blanks yet? Mm-hmm. This might be an incest situation. In which case, when Noah curses, he's cursing the offspring of that incestual situation. So he's, I always feel like that just wasn't there because if he just happened to go in that's door, just right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, is if you don't read the sexual innuendo then it just feels like i got drunk and you saw that i was drunk and naked how dare you it's like you're an idiot but if you read it as as sexual innuendo then it be, it makes a little more sense and becomes 10 times more disturbing this family is not healthy well you know, even, No, that's right even like after the flood it, there had to be some in somewhere because it was just Noah and his sons well, yeah, even in the... Not, like we said earlier with Adam and Eve, who is Cain's wife? Well, unless you have the more expansive view of human history and that Adam and Eve is just the origin of the Jewish line that happens within human history, you can have that interpretation, but if you have the, interpreta- the literalistic interpretation that Adam and Eve are the first two humans, then Cain's wife has to be a sister. But there's a much different take on sleeping with somebody who is a sister or a cousin which happens a lot in the Old Testament in fact Sarah who we'll talk about next week her husband's half brother that's much less condemned what I say, yeah, Abraham and and Sarah are half siblings but sleeping with your mom is not cool at any point under any cultural circumstance it's a quite possibly disturbing passage. So, all right, that's the women of Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And if we leave now, we might make kickoff. We hope you have enjoyed this production of Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrites at gmail.com. That's t a g w i l l r e i t z at gmail.com. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The purpose of this podcast is to educate use and distribution of this podcast will be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and we hope you will be back to download more and thank you.